Our scripture reading today will be taken from Colossians as we introduced the book last week. We're going to be analyzing the first two verses of Colossians this morning as we begin the letter proper. As we mentioned last time, Paul wrote several books while he was in jail. And this is one of the books that he wrote in jail. After he wrote Romans, he wrote in the next five to ten years of his life multiple, multiple New Testament books, and jail was a place where he wrote a lot of them. And this book of Colossians is one that was written while he was in jail. Now, as we go to the first couple of verses of the text, I want you to notice that there are three coordinating conjunctions and, and, that are used in verses one and two. They're not subordinating conjunctions, so what this means is these are co-equal thoughts, but they are also distinct things. When you have a conjunction and joining two things together in co-equality, it's distinct. So the first one is in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So what we have is we have three different things that are connected there by the conjunction and. You have Timothy, who's connected to Paul in some co-equal way. You have saints connected to faithful brethren, but these are separate classifications, saints and faithful brethren co-equal. And then you have grace connected to peace, also co-equal connection. That's important to see. And we'll hopefully explain that as we work our way through it this morning. May God add his blessing to the reading of those two verses and the exposition of it to follow. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Our Father, on this particular Sunday, we bow before your heavenly majesty to thank you for the greatest gift that's ever been given to this world, and that, of course, would be your son, Jesus Christ. What a gift that is. It truly is the wonder of all wonders. What love, what mercy, what grace is involved in the Lord Jesus Christ coming to this world. The fact that your precious son would come here to die for us is something we don't deserve. It's beyond our grasp. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and he knew that. He saw that. We could offer you nothing, and he knew that and saw that. We could not do anything to satisfy your demands. He knew that and saw that. We did not think right. We did not talk right. We did not act right. And he knew and he saw that. Yet, he chose to come here to be born, to live, to die, to save us who were eternal losers, to make us eternal winners. Lord, we pray that what you've done for us would affect us. Not just one time a year in December, but every month and every day. We ask that we would be like those alert shepherds who wanted to get close to him just as fast as they could. We pray that we would have that same kind of passion to get as close to Jesus Christ as we possibly can. Thank you so much for him. Lord, we love you. We just want to say thank you for everything. In Jesus' name, amen. We get emails and letters from various places in the United States and in the world. And whenever we get one of these, no matter who it is or where it's from, 
we will typically begin a response in a similar way. Typically, I'll begin by saying thank you for your letter, thank you for your question, thank you for your encouragement, and then I move to the specific nature of the letter. Each letter has its own peculiar content, but the way we begin a response is generally the same way. That's the way it was for the Apostle Paul. Now, he's not only writing personal responses, but he's writing inspired revelation. Paul got asked a lot of questions back in his day. People would fire questions at him on almost every possible subject imaginable. I mean, if you go through Colossians and 1 Corinthians, they're firing questions to him about doctrine. They're firing questions to him about morality. They're firing questions to him about legal matters, court matters. They're firing questions to him about marital issues, vocational issues. They're firing questions at him about financial issues and conduct and speech and gray areas. They're just asking him a whole bunch of questions. And he did not have email or postal department. So typically what would happen is somebody would contact him and share their concerns and give them their questions. Now, it was normal for Paul to begin a letter generally the same way. He would start a letter by introducing himself and introducing the recipients of the letter. That's how a typical New Testament letter from that first century began. Paul did not send a letter, and it came in a nice envelope. It came written on a scroll. And the scroll was either made of papyrus paper or vellum animal skin. So by giving an introduction up front at the beginning of the letter, the recipients wouldn't have to unravel this whole scroll or this whole document to figure out who wrote it and to whom it was written. What makes Colossians different is not the fact that he's writing to a place he's never been before. He did that in Romans. He had not been to Rome. He wanted to go there, but he hadn't been there. And yet he wrote Romans a letter but what makes Colossians so different from Romans is that he did not personally know most of the people in this church. Now, it's clear from Romans 16, when we went through that text, that Paul knew almost everybody in the church. But when he writes Colossians, he didn't know most of the people in the church of Colossae. Now, when a minister goes to candidate at a church, you go to a church where hardly anybody knows you. I mean, you don't know anybody there for the most part, and so they question you. Well, Paul didn't know anybody personally for the most part in the church of Colossae, and he was in jail at the time he wrote this letter. And what that shows us is that Paul cared about the work of God. He cared about the church of God. He cared about the truth of God, even when he'd never been to a church and didn't know most of the people. As we said last time, you could lock Paul up, but you couldn't shut him up. Because if you locked him up, he would take that as an opportunity to witness, and he also took that, obviously, as an opportunity to write the inspired word of God. In fact, the imprisonment of Paul was used by God in his life to write inspired scripture. You can't find Paul sitting in jail feeling sorry for himself. And he had learned of doctrinal problems in a church like Colossae. He decided they needed a letter he needed to write. It obviously burdened him to the point that he decided to write to straighten it out. 
Now, several years ago, I got lost in the mountains. I was hunting with Jim Vanderveen. Actually, I just wanted to get away from him. <laughs> so I told him I was lost. It's not true. Jim's a great guy to go with. He's a tough man, real tough man. But anyway, I was lost. I didn't know where I was. I got out in a whole different mountain range, and two guys I'd never met before rode up. They saw the trouble I was in, and they invited me to go to their camp, and they put me up for the night. I didn't know them at all. They saw the predicament I was in. They took it upon themselves to help. That's what Paul's doing here in Colossians. He saw this doctrinal predicament that these people were in, decided to write them a letter. They were people who were going to that church, and people were creeping into that church, and they were adding things to grace. They were telling people that you had to keep Sabbath day rituals, and Sabbath day worshiping on Sunday wasn't good enough. You had to keep Sabbath day things. They were telling these people you had to go back under the Old Testament law, and they had to look for certain works. And apparently, according to what Paul writes in this letter, they were persuasive. They made it sound good. They made it sound reasonable. They were adding stuff. They were telling these people, your faith in Jesus Christ and your commitment to the written scriptures is not enough. And they were starting to affect people in this church, so Paul decided to write a letter. And what he does is he begins this letter to the Colossians by identifying himself and identifying those to whom he's writing. Now I want to point out, before we launch into this, that the scriptures are written. He's writing this. That is what we need. What we need is an accurate, careful understanding of the written word of God. That is where you will find truth. You won't find it in schools. Although teachers are supposed to be those that tell the truth. You won't find it in too many who will tell you God didn't create the world. Big Bang did. They'll tell you that God didn't create humans. They evolved from amoebas and apes. They'll tell you God didn't make you male or female. You pick or choose what you want to be. They'll tell you there are no absolutes. Do what you want. Believe what you want. Paul says, that's not how it works. You need the written scriptures. That's the authority. That is the absolute. That's what God has inspired. There are 66 books that God has inspired. You invest your life in learning those books, studying those books, and you'll go far. Now, there are four introductory matters that Paul addresses here that we want to point out. First of all, he introduces himself in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He begins by introducing himself to the Colossians, and there are three facts that he presents about himself. And fact number one is he wants them to know, I'm an apostle. Paul is an apostle. Now, by beginning with that fact, the Colossians would realize, wow, this is a guy who has great authority. This is a guy who has some unusual status in a relationship with the Lord. This is an authoritative letter that's been written to us by an authoritative apostle. In fact, that's what the word apostle basically means, sent messenger. This has been written to us by a guy who's been called and sent and gifted by God. 
That was his spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is a supernatural, divine enablement that enables somebody to accomplish what God wants them to accomplish way above the norm, way above the average. One who has a gift like this is supernaturally able to function at a whole different level than one who doesn't have the gift. Now Paul says, and he starts it off, he wants them to know, I'm writing this, I'm an apostle. And in the classification of spiritual gifts, being an apostle was the highest gift that one could have. Paul listed it as first, number one gift in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. To be an apostle was a very unique, very special gift. It was a very sacred calling. You had to have qualifications that nobody can meet today. First of all, if you were an apostle, you had to have been specifically called and divinely appointed by Jesus Christ himself to be an apostle. In other words, Jesus Christ actually had to show up and personally call you to be an apostle. That happened to Paul on that road to Damascus. He wasn't thinking about being an apostle. He was thinking about tracking down Christians and destroying them. And Jesus Christ literally, literally appeared to him and called him to be apostle. Secondly, you had to have been personally taught and instructed by Jesus Christ for three years. The other apostles were taught and instructed by Jesus Christ when he was physically here on earth. The apostle Paul, on uh, the Arabian desert, after he came to faith in the Lord, disappears for about three years where Christ taught him. Paul said, I got the gospel directly from Jesus Christ. He taught me that. Thirdly, you had to have specifically seen the resurrected Christ in a personal appearance. Jesus Christ had to personally appear to you and show you himself after he had been raised from the dead. And fourthly, you had to be given by Jesus Christ the power to perform sign apostolic miracles. There are miracles that only the apostles were able to perform. Now, Paul was not one of the original 12 but he was just as authorized to be an apostle as any of the other apostles. And he made it clear, I'm the least of the apostles, but I'm also the last of the apostles. The gift of apostle is no longer operative. No person today meets the qualifications or the criteria of being an apostle. So if they're going around saying, I'm apostle so-and-so, they're delusional. There are no apostles today. They're gone. What we have is their inspired writings. And by Paul beginning this letter this way, he's establishing that a rare, and these were rare men, a rare apostle of God has taken a personal interest in this church that he's never been, doesn't even know most of the people. He's taken an interest in this church, and he has a message from God for this church. And when Paul says he's an apostle, he's not thinking more highly of himself than he ought. Those are facts. That's the truth. There's nothing wrong with that. These Colossians would do well to recognize this authority. And if you want a discussion, a complete discussion on the subject of spiritual gifts, we discuss them all in our pneumatology study, pages 96 to 146. It's in the library. God enabled some apostles to write his word. That's what we have, and that's what we need. And Paul says to this group in Colossae, I'm an apostle. 
The second fact that he brings out about himself is I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not only an apostle, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I like something Dr. Swindoll said years ago, your view of Jesus Christ will impact every area of your life. That is so right on. Now, the genitive construction of Jesus Christ means that Jesus Christ was the source of the apostleship of Paul and also the object of the apostleship of Paul. Everything about Paul's apostleship was about Jesus Christ. He uses the noun order Jesus Christ here. By using the noun order, he's stressing Jesus, he's the Savior, Christ, he's the Messiah. Whenever Paul begins a letter, he's going to name Christ. He'll name Jesus Christ. In fact, the combination of Christ Jesus is used seven times in his introduction to letters. Romans, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Philemon. The combination of Jesus Christ is used four times. 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians, Titus. And the combination of Lord Jesus Christ is used two times. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. The emphasis here is that his apostolic authorization came from the Savior Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, when you go through this book of Colossians, as we will, it will become very, very clear that Jesus Christ is presented as the God, Savior, Messiah, King. All deity dwelt in him in bodily form. That's what Paul's going to lay out about Jesus Christ. He's the one everybody needs in life. He's what you need for a relationship with God. He's all you need for a relationship with God. Paul's going to drive that home when he goes up against those philosophers that were trying to say, you need more than that. In fact, in this very book of Colossians, he'll establish he's fully God even when he was here as a human in a body. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and thirdly, by the will of God. Boy, he brings that out. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. J.B. Lightfoot said something interesting. There's no personal merit in this, and Paul doesn't want any personal merit in this. He wants people to understand this is all by God's grace, and this is all by God's will, and God's grace and God's will alone. And really, that should be what we strive for in our own lives. That should be the testimony of all of us. I am what I am by the will of God. Paul's not an apostle because he wanted to be one. He didn't, in fact. He never set out in life with an ambition to become an apostle. He certainly was not seeking that gift. He certainly was not seeking that position. He makes it very clear he did not become an apostle through manipulation. He didn't become an apostle through usurpation. He did not become an apostle through human nomination. He didn't become an apostle because of seminary education, congregational election, or religious recommendation. He did not become an apostle because somebody thought, you know, you'd make a good one. He was an apostle by the will of God. And I think something that would be worth asking today for each of us is this question. Am I where I am today because of God's will or my will? Do I do what I do because of God's will or my will? Paul's thinking about that in prison. 
as he's writing this letter. He said, I want you to understand something. I'm an apostle, not by my will. I'm an apostle by God's will. He believed that God had actually decreed that he would be an apostle from his mother's womb, even though it would be years, years, before he would come to terms with the reality of this. But Paul said, I want you to understand something. I became an apostle by the will of God. You know, it's a shame that so many people spend their lives jealous of other people. And you don't understand what that's going to do to you. You'll miss out on what God gave you the ability to do. If you spend your life jealous of what other people can do or have, you'll miss out on what God has made you, designed you to be. You'll miss out on your own unique gifts and skills, and you won't accomplish much of anything for God because you'll be looking at your will, not God's will. Paul said, I am an apostle by the will of God. So he introduces himself that way. The second introductory matter is he introduces Timothy. He introduces Timothy, and Timothy, our brother. Now, as I pointed out in the scripture reading this morning, the Apostle Paul uses a coordinating conjunction when he mentions Timothy here, which would indicate that Paul saw him as co-equal in the work of God, although Paul's the apostle, Timothy's not. Paul has apostolic authority, Timothy doesn't. The fact of the matter is, Timothy was important. Timothy was very important to Paul, very important to God. So he introduces him as our brother. He's the brother of us, which has two relationships or applications. First of all, Timothy was the brother of Paul. Not only was Paul's brother in Christ Timothy, but he was also his son in the faith, which means that Timothy and Paul had a special mentor relationship. Between Paul and Timothy, there was a close intimacy where Paul taught him. In fact, he said, I have nobody like him. He actually gravitated to what Paul was teaching, and he followed his teaching. He applied his teaching. He knew Pauline doctrine. That will become evident in just a moment. The second relationship that he brings out is he's a brother to the Colossians. Timothy was in the family of God. He was a brother to the Colossians. Now, some commentators are puzzled by the fact that Paul includes the name Timothy here because after verse 9, Paul writes in the singular, I. He doesn't use the plural anymore, we are us. So it's clear that Paul is the one writing this letter, not Timothy. Why include him here? That's the question. Why include him here when you're not going to include him for most of the letter? Well, Timothy must have been known by this Colossian congregation. That's the only thing you can think through. Timothy was in Ephesus with Paul on that third missionary journey. It very well may be that when Epaphras came and met Paul and then went back to Colossae and started the church based on Paul's grace teaching, Timothy had been there. He knew Epaphras. Some have believed that Timothy may have gone to Colossae while Paul was in Ephesus to help see that that church was getting launched off in proper doctrine, proper grace theology. The Colossians apparently knew Timothy. Paul wanted them to know that Timothy was right there with him in Rome. And so he says, Paul and Timothy are brother. Then he identifies the recipients of the letter. And it's interesting how he identifies them. In verse 2, to the saints... And faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. 
Now, this word is written to God's people. It's an amazing grace gift. And by the way, I want to stress that. God did not write the letters of the scriptures hoping that lost people would like them, which so many people just lose sight of. The scriptures are written to God's people. They've never been taken seriously by people that don't know the Lord. In fact, people that aren't in tune with the Spirit of God can't even begin to understand the Bible. It's like they're reading some other language when they read the Bible. They may understand a few things about history, but they can't make connection between the dots of what is being communicated there. God wrote inspired truth for his people. There are three interesting facts that he brings out about these people. First of all, they're saints in Christ. That's what he says, to the saints in Christ. Now, I want to talk about that. Because if I were to say to you, are you a saint? How would you answer that? And there's a difference of classification between saint and faithful brethren. That's where that coordinating conjunction and comes into play. So a saint is a person who's been set apart by God, who's a believer in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been set apart by God from the masses of humanity, you've been classified by God as a agias, one who's set apart by God, positionally speaking, in a relationship with him. This has nothing to do with whether you're spiritual or not. This has everything to do with your positional status. He'll talk about the spiritual condition in just a second. But this has nothing to do with the spiritual condition. It has everything to do with whether one is a believer in Jesus Christ. It is not determined by whether or not you're good. You're a saint. If you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is your status. You've been set apart as a child of God. And notice, to be a saint, you don't have to have some church vote you into sainthood. You're a saint set apart unto God the moment you believe. That word agias, saint, was used in regard to the temple in Jerusalem. It's set apart from every other building in the world. It was set apart as a place that would honor the Lord. That's the way it is for a believer. Everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is set apart as a child of God. Now, does God want faithfulness? Well, that's fact number two. Paul brings out the fact that he's writing this letter to the faithful brethren in Christ. So now he says, I'm not only just writing to saints, but also those faithful brethren in Christ. Paul's not writing this letter to carnal fleshly believers. He is writing this letter to spiritually minded believers. And it's spiritually minded believers who always take God's written word seriously. And this is why most people who say they're Christians are not real serious about God and his word because they're not real serious about being faithful to God and his word. They can be religious. Obviously, there are a lot of religious people in Colossae. They can be religious, but they're not faithful. I'll tell you what, you take faithful people of God and this word of God comes to life. God's word is loved by faithful people. Faithful people of God, they're fed on it. When you open up the word of God systematically to faithful people of God, they just thrive. Carnal fleshly people don't. Carnal fleshly people would rather have shallow, warmer heart and good feelings that are fuzzy. 
Faithful people want a careful unraveling of the word of God. The written scriptures will always be top priority for faithful people. We live in a world that says, live by how you feel. Yeah, that's it. Govern your life by how you feel. You do that, you'll make wrong choices almost every choice you make. Do what you can do to build your self-esteem. Don't listen to anything that's negative. You want to really have a positive view of everything. See, that kind of philosophy is not found in the Word of God. And faithful people of God don't want that. Faithful people of God are not content with religious talk. They're not content with somebody rambling. They want to be taught God's written word. Carnal believers never understand the true deeper things of God, and that's exactly what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, I wish I could feed you meatier things of Scripture, but I can't. You're so fleshly and carnal, you don't get it. Their diet was shallow. They were surface level. They were at elementary level in their understanding, and they weren't able to grasp solid food. These Colossians were. That tells you something about them. So I'm writing to you believers. I'm writing to you who are faithful in the church. And thirdly, I'm writing to you who live in Colossae. He says, who are at Colossae. Now, these believers are living in a specific area, and we just have to understand a little bit about this area to realize they're getting their own inspired letter from God and from Paul. And what's interesting about this is this is not a big-time area like Rome. It's not a big-time area like Ephesus. In fact, two of the cities that he names in the last chapter of this book that were close to Colossae, Laodicea and Hierapolis, those are both big, big cities, flourishing cities. This is a smaller area, a small city. I mean, it would be like we could understand it if you're writing to Grand Rapids or Kalamazoo, but not Bloomingdale. And I don't want to offend you if you live in Bloomingdale. <laughs> the city of Colossae set in the Colossae Valley, and they got a lot of travelers. That was a major route, travel route. And as a result of that, you know, you'd have people stop in just like they do. They didn't have cars, but they would stop in to get their animals some fuel. And they would stop into this little place to get a few supplies, perhaps get a meal, perhaps find a place where they could pitch a tent and hunker down for a night or two. I mean, that's the kind of little out-of-the-way place it was, but it sat on a major route. It wasn't one of the big-time cities, but there it was. And when these people would come into Colossae and hunker down for the night, they came in there with all these crazy religious views. And they'd be talking, and people would be listening. I mean, some of these people in the Church of Colossae were doing business with some of these people. And as a result of that, they started to become confused about what it was that they actually believed. And so Paul said, I've got to straighten them out. They're getting way out there in what they're thinking. So he writes this for these believers that live in Colossae. What an amazing thing to think God went to all the trouble out of all those big cities in the area, to single us out and send us a letter from an apostle that's inspired by him. I think that's the way we should think about the word of God. Who in the world are we to have a copy of the word of God? 
God went to all the trouble not only to preserve the word of God, but he went to all the trouble to get it into our own English language. And then we have copies of it that we can carefully go through. I mean, my goodness, what an amazing demonstration of grace that is. But you see, God is interested in his people. He's interested in people that are faithful to him no matter where they are, no matter what their numbers are. And Paul said, I'm writing you this inspired letter to this church, even though you're not one of the big churches, you're not one of the flashy churches, you're not one of the mega churches, you're getting a letter from God because you're faithful to him. Which brings us to the fourth matter. He introduces the message from God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. There are three messages that we glean from that little grammatical structure. Now notice what he says, grace to you. You have grace. You can't find anywhere, anywhere in Paul's greetings where he says, Sabbath day greetings to you. You can't find anywhere where Paul says in his greetings, Old Testament law to you. No, what you find him saying in all of his writings is grace to you. Because he realized that undeserved, unmerited favor of God has been given to us in Jesus Christ. He realized that he's the apostle, as he writes in Ephesians, a letter in close proximity to Colossians, when he was the apostle who was given the wonderful privilege of God to unlock the dispensation of the grace of God. We live in the age of grace, the church age, in which when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have everlasting life. When you go to work on understanding the scriptures, your spirituality just takes off grace to you in that. You don't need anything other than that. Secondly, and peace, peace to you. So it's grace that gives you the opportunity to have peace. There's two ways that peace can operate. You have the peace with God the moment you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but then as you purpose to obey the scriptures, you can have the peace of God. And I want you to notice, as Paul begins the letter, he's saying, this is how you get the grace, and this is how you get the peace from the written scriptures. This letter that I'm writing to you will help produce grace and peace. And then he says it comes from God our Father. The actual source of grace and peace is God the Father. And how does that come? Verse 3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting the preposition from. I like analyzing this stuff. It's a preposition that means all grace and peace has actually had a departing source, and the departing source from where this came is God the Father. In other words, when the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, he was actually fulfilling exactly what God the Father was authorizing as the source. He's going to offer grace and peace 
by sending his son into the world. He's the place from where grace and peace departed. You can't find the grace of God, you can't find the peace of God in any other person other than the Lord Jesus Christ. You won't find it in you, you won't find it in works, you won't find it in religion, you will not find it in Old Testament law, you'll not find grace and peace if you try to keep Old Testament law or Sabbath day rules. What you'll find is frustration. Because grace and peace is found in one place. It's authorized by God the Father to be found in one person, Jesus Christ. You believe on him and you will experience his grace and peace and you will be a saint in his sight. Let's pray. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, why not settle it right now in this moment? Just admit the truth. The truth, we're all sinners. Invite the Lord Jesus Christ to come into your life and save you. In fact, for those of you that have done that, reflect on what Paul is saying here and what he said about his own life. God's will, not my will. Father, thank you for your precious word. We pray you do that wonderful work of grace that you have given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would accomplish your will in the aspects of which you want us to accomplish. For anything that you've done here today, it's your grace that did it. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.